Welcome to the Veterans of Peace Radio Hour and Podcast on Radio Free Nashville, 107.1 and 103.7, and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. When we think about what are the things that trigger senses of despair, what is it that we're scared of? Why is everybody tuning in? Why are why is everybody else tuning out? Right? What is causing all of this paralysis, emotional paralysis, in a moment where um, where it's very widespread? I mean, you can diagnose the heck out of the United States, but various stages of high stress and anxiety are more the norm than the exception. And then you're throwing into that the pandemic and, you know, millions of guns and what could possibly go wrong. That was Ricardo Levin's Morales, artist, activist, counselor. And we will hear more from Ricardo as he speaks to the Leadership Center for Social Justice part of the United Theological Seminary, and his topic, Praxis of Hope. But first, my name is Jim Walgermuth, and I'm here with fellow Vietnam veteran Harvey Bennett. We're members of Veterans for Peace. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Just go to veteransforpeace.org. This radio show and podcast are on stations across the country thanks to the Pacifica Radio Network. We're also on SoundCloud, Anchor Podcast, Spotify, and your phone podcast app. Just search Veterans for Peace. The Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by the Green Party of Tennessee, bringing some common sense into the bipolar world of American politics. Go to greenpartyoftennessee.org. While the mainstream media, YouTube, Twitter, and other platforms are censoring voices of activism and dissent, we will continue to share those voices who stand up against the establishment, who stand up against the military, industrial, congressional, media, corporate complex, who stand up for us, the global us. As you know from tuning in last week, Harvey is up to his chin with the visit of the Golden Rule to Charleston, South Carolina. He's managed and coordinated a lot of activities, and it is going so well. But uh, he will not be joining us today, but he did refer me to a wonderful presentation, which I mentioned before, with Ricardo Levens Morales, as he gives a presentation to the Leadership Center for Social Justice. And the topic is the praxis of hope. And so with that, let's get to it. The praxis of hope, an evening with Ricardo Levens Morales. My name is Rai Sigelko, and I direct the Leadership Center for Social Justice here at United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. At the Leadership Center for Social Justice is to equip, inspire, and empower leaders to faithfully and reflectively engage in concrete contextual ministry for social justice. It is my honor to introduce our speaker this evening, the celebrated and beloved artist, Ricardo Levens Morales, whose art has, for so many of us, been an inspiration in struggles for justice, in times of, in, in, in very challenging times, like the one we're currently living in. Ricardo is an artist and an organizer based right here in Minneapolis. He uses his art as a form of political medicine to support individual and collective healing from the injuries and ongoing reality of oppression. Political medicine. His art heals. Ricardo was born into the anti-colonial movement in his native Puerto Rico and was drawn into activism in Chicago when his family moved there in 1967. Ricardo left high school early and worked in various industries and over time began to use his art as part of his movement work. This activism has included support, support work, supporting work for the Black Panthers and Young Lords and participating in or acting in solidarity with farmers, environmental, labor, racial justice, anti-war, and other struggles for people's empowerment. And I'm so grateful to you, Ricardo, for speaking with us tonight on a very important theme, the praxis of hope. I just want to share some of the things I think I've learned, maybe, 
which is the best we can do. Hope is not something that you can measure, has a list of ingredients you can weigh and, you know, and um, sort of test its velocity, right? It's really something we engage with. And so the best we can do is share how we engage with that and hope that it'll be useful. And in the course of that, I'll be making some assertions. Say, say, I'll be saying some shit, right? And some of that you can, I mean, some of that I'll be telling stories to back up. Others, I'm just going to throw it out there. You know, we have a limited evening. And my hope is to reframe some of the ways in which we normally think about hope. So for years, I found myself kind of baffled by that question that interviewers often ask at the end of a conversation especially when it has to do with social justice. They say, what gives you hope? And I was able, I would, you know, bluff my way through the answer. But it took me a long time to finally figure out that somehow the, problem, the question didn't really make sense to me. That I don't think of hope as a thing that one needs to acquire. But it's a basic fundamental reality of life. Any chipmunk heading out in the forest and rustling through the leaves looking for seeds for the day or nesting materials to you know, stuff into their burrow is being driven by hope or drawn by hope more likely. Um, the, any tree roots that are you know, winding their way toward moisture or nutrients in the soil, that's hope, that's action um, to improve things, action to achieve a world that's a little bit different than the one that we're in and that we need to move toward. So I think the, you know, it's really the renewable energy source of life, right? It's, it's really hope. Um, Y'all came here or tuned into Zoom based on hope, hope for something, hope, hoping to get some out of this, right? Um, so I think the question really that we need to address is not how do we find sources of hope, but what can cause damage on such a massive scale that it can disable the core battery pack of our beings? So much to the point that it keeps us from taking the actions that we need to take in order to achieve hopefulness. And we know some of the answers. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on. But also, oppression, toxicity, chemicals, abuse are cumulative. And not only in our own lifetimes, but after generation of ge after generation, we're seeing the effects of an accumulation of several hundred years of the toxicities of colonialism and abuse and um, poison in our foods and our bodies and the land and so forth. And it's really important for us to think about this in very concrete and practical terms at a time when this essential fuel is missing from the lives of many young people to the point that suicide is kept in the drawer as a possible exit strategy. That ain't right. So what any of us need is very specific. But hopefully the observations that I'm going to share will help, help to shift some misconceptions. And I'm coming to you as a person who does not experience despair. I am, I am fully human. Right? And I experienced the full gamut of emotions and, you know, fear and love and, you know, vigilance and, um, you know, whatever we can think of that are, that are actually emotions. But to my understanding, despair is not an emotion. We take in information, as Rai was referring, we take in information through our senses about our world around us. And our emotions are one of the ways in which we, the first line of filtering those, those senses to tell us how to respond. Should we be fearful or should we be um, relaxed and calm and welcoming or should we be curious, right? We interpret those through our emotions and that provides us with information to act on. Despair is not an emotion because it does not provide us with information to act on. It's a signal that says in a repeating loop, it's not even worth looking because there is no action. There is no possibility. It's not worth the effort, right? So it's a, it's a malfunction of our, emo our emotional immune system. So it pays to become intimate with what it is that triggers our feelings of despair, not to give it a free ride. Despair isn't our friend and is not a good advisor. It's not what happens when there aren't possibilities. It's what prevents us from seeing them. 
And in our culture, it's really amplified by pathological levels of individualism, which afflicts a number of different cultures here, probably more than anywhere. In fact, I um, read in a, a textbook on public health, on global public health, um, in one paper, they believed that suicide in countries of high individualism is associated with that ideology because it tells us that it's all about me, that all of my successes in life are about me. All of my failures are about me. They're my fault. There's no room in that for looking at the environment that provides options or denies us options, so it's always my fault. And it also isolates us from other people. It's all about me. And that's also what the impact of trauma. Trauma isolates us from each other. We're really social primate species, but trauma is the ultimate disconnection and it keeps us isolated even though healing is always about reconnection. So I want to stop real quickly right there because what Ricardo Levens Morales is talking about relates so clearly to what Dr. Kelly Denton Borhawk talked about on our show um, last November, I think, when we discussed moral injury in the U.S. war culture, that this toxicity is born and bred into us as United States citizens. I'm attending a moral injury group at the VA, and one thing I noticed without revealing anything private is that every member of the group relates an individual trauma that they faced in the military service. And they see it, and, and rightfully so, as an individual trauma. But you can see underlying it is the U.S. war culture or the U.S. culture uh, that set them up for it and sets up the civilian non-military population for which Ricardo was just talking about. Um, now, if you want to, you can find our discussion with Dr. Borhog by just going to SoundCloud and search Veterans for Peace and then scrolling down. So with that, back to the discussion. And I say reconnecting, and I'm grounding that specifically in the experience of people living in cultures like ours, because it's not true that all of humanity has been disconnected. But certainly those who have most been, impact, been most impacted by colonialism and patriarchy and capitalism have been, because disconnection is the, the modus operandi. Um, so yeah, Rai mentioned that I think of my art as being medicinal. And that means I try to address the toxins, the obstacles, the internal and external things that keep people from feeling powerful and from acting on that power. In public health, we deal with a lot of different conditions that make us feel bad and that harm our bodies, from colds and flus, to cancer, to diabetes, to dementia, um, all kinds of different dysfunctions and overloads. And those are rooted through the public, in the public health lens, in an underlying condition, which is systemic inflammation. That's when we've been, our bodies are under so much assault that we're on high alert all the time, right? And in fact, we don't even know what friend, what's friend and what's foe. It's what autoimmune conditions come out of, right? And we have social autoimmune conditions too, that we feel so scared and so isolated that we interpret everybody as being an enemy or we can be manipulated into, into thinking so. As an organizer who's worked in the field of culture for most of my life, I believe that hopelessness is the underlying systemic inflammation of our culture. So that means that as a practitioner, I, when I create art that is dealing with some form of abuse or under-resourcing or thievery or you know, employers not recognizing, not wanting to recognize their union or police violence, I'm addressing the acute condition, but also in a way that will hopefully address the underlying condition of hopelessness. Um, I don't have one issue that is my issue. My issue is human resilience in the face of oppression and abuse. And that's what I want the accumulated effect of my art to be able to impact. The environment I grew up in was, was very forested, with farm patches within woods. And that really taught, there was nothing in my life really that had an on button or an off button or a blinky light or a beep 
or a fast forward or a pause, which meant that I lived in a world where things took their time, where there were cycles and rhythms within rhythms. There were rainy season and dry seasons. There were reproductive cycles of, of, you know, of lizards. There were um, you know, depletion and replenishment of water tables. And that really has given me a kind of what I believe is a clarity that has helped me with issues of hope, despair, and political strategy. To know where we are in a cycle, to know that we are in a cycle. For example, right now we're living in the aftermath of the insurrection that followed George Floyd's murder. That brought with it what's called a racial reckoning, an explosion of everybody's down with racial justice now. And philanthropy and corporations, Wells Fargo on the one hand is redlining communities and charging black families more than white ones, and on the other hand now they're all about racial justice, right? Um, ha knowing how these cycles work um, over the next year or so as that dissipates and as, as the liberal politicians start backtracking and running in the other directions and we find out that the police system is actually increasing in size and sophistication, that's not going to shock me and devastate me because I know that that is the part of the cycle that we're in. For people new to this struggle, it's like, wow, finally the world is going to change. I hate to burst people's bubbles, but it's useful to know an accurate diagnosis, even if it's not the one that we wish we had, right? Because that gives us courses of action. To break in again, we also did a show years ago about cycles and specifically uh, as described by the book, uh, The Fourth Turning by Strauss and Howe, which broke down cycles of humanity. And when we look at their analysis and it appears to be holding, we are right in what they would call a period of crisis. And that crisis will have some sort of climax or crescendo um, over the next six years. And it'll be followed by a period of, that they call a high, uh, a period of cooperation and harmony and getting back to institutions and trust, uh, similarly to what we had after World War II. Uh, to me, it's just worrying about what that crescendo might be. There's also a lot of conflict in nature. Um, something that I was able to translate into the activist world that I landed in in Chicago as a teenager. But that in that conflict between scorpions and lizards, predators and prey, um, creatures defending their turf against each other, there are no good guys and bad guys. What you have are individuals pursuing to, you know, the efforts to meet their own needs, their hope, right? In the best way they know how with the advantages and disadvantages at hand. An observation that served me well when we landed in the States. That's more uh, kids in the hood bringing water up to the top of the mountain from the, from the spring. Yep, like I say, we landed in Chicago in the late 60s. Um, and that was a time when I, you know, I was hitting adolescence. Um, it was 1967, so you know there was a lot going on. Um, you know, immigration kind of hit my family hard and we sort of went our different ways. I moved out of home when I was 15. I dropped out of high school. And what I found was uh, an environment of social movements and organizing that was explicitly about restoring power to people whose power had been taken away. That's your elevator definition of trauma healing, right? And I don't want to generalize this because any massive experience can have opposite and contradictory impacts on, on people. But for me, it was a message to my nervous system that restoration of power when it's been taken away is possible. Right? And that is the healing potential of social organizing. When I see so many cases of people having to go recharge their batteries, do what they call self-care so that they can return to a depleting model of organizing, it breaks my heart because it should not be that way. Healing should be about healing in the experience as well as the goal. Yep, so that's kind of been my obsession and life mission ever since. And it also brings up another aspect of um, what I think is very essential in healing, and that is truth-telling. 
One of the things, one, witnessing is one of the important stages of healing from trauma and healing from oppression and overcoming it. It's not enough. If all we do is witness over and over, it becomes rehearsing our trauma, but it is an important and necessary stage nonetheless. In this case, um, all of us kids knew that the Blackstone Rangers, the Disciples, the Latin Kings, um, all of these gangs were being played against each other by the city government. Recently, the files have been released that showed that the um, gang intelligence unit, they called it, were in fact ca causing friction, sending messages to try to get conflicts between these street gangs because they did not want them to follow the example of the Young Lords and the Black Panthers and become activists. So truth-telling is an important part, and we knew to share these stories, even if the evidence would take decades to follow. Um, Fred Hampton was one of the leaders in that time um, whose methodology really has become embedded in my DNA. He was Chairman Fred of the Chicago chapter of the Black Panther Party, the first group I ever made a poster for, in fact, for a fundraiser. And what was significant to me, what remains really important, not the only thing, but the one that I want to highlight was the coalition that he helped to organize among Puerto Ricans, whites, and black folks initially called the Rainbow Coalition. They came up with that term. Others later appropriated it. But he, uh, one of the things that they did was approach the young patriots who were a white street gang who used the symbols of the Confederacy and the Ku Klux Klan and their garments and their symbology um, and was able to build an alliance with them. Incident where some of the Panthers were able to see these young white kids being treated really contemptuously by the white liberal establishment. And they asked, why are these white kids hurting so bad in a society that's all about whiteness? And they came up with a really brilliant strategy to find out. They asked them. <laughs> you know, just so crazy, it just might work. Um, and they found out it was, you know, as one of the Panthers later confided, um, you know, Rainbow Coalition, that's just code word for class struggle. But when the Panthers went out to the neighborhood, the, the Young Patriots neighborhood in Uptown, they found, you know, rat-infested apartments, under-resourced schools, boarded up stores. They said it was the worst um, housing conditions they'd ever seen, right? And so they built an ongoing alliance that dealt with housing issues, police brutality, and the rest for a period of years. And I bring that up because it's another of the underlying principles that is very much related to hope and the ability to move forward. And that is the principle that they embodied was not how do we mess up these guys, you know, these racist a-holes, right? It was let's make them a better offer. Making a better offer. People, chipmunks, hawks, and butterflies will always migrate toward the best offer. Not the best offer there is, the best offer that they can find on the menu. And the best offer they can find on the menu that feels viable. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, but people are always moving toward what seems to make sense. And that's crucial to understand because even if there's some wacko running down the street waving a gun at me out of the belief that I'm an alien Martian coming to suck his brains out. He's actually acting rationally within the context of his beliefs. Because that's not an unreasonable thing to do if that's how he understands reality, right? So in cultural work, we call that preparing the soil. How do we affect the environment of beliefs and values and collective memories so that it makes sense to act in ways that are kind? This is, of course, Trayvon Martin. Um, I made this poster not because he was murdered by a vigilante in Florida, but because when I looked at the art that was being created, it was all rehearsing hopelessness. It was all saying, you know, Emmett Till was murdered in 1964, 62, somewhere in there. Um, you know, Trayvon is murdered now, nothing ever changes. Right? There's a kernel of truth in that, but it's not medicine. So I found this quote from Ella Baker that looks toward a future when this won't be happening, while acknowledging that it was still happening. It's got to be medicinal. Again, addressing people as 
people, right? Which means that they migrate toward the best thing that they find for protection, for family, for whatever it is, right? And creating a context. I'll give you an anecdote. The, one of the, um, the sort of poster child of bad choices are teenage girls in high school getting pregnant having kids, it's like this is, you know, and there was a study that, that was done working with black teenage girls, black teenage moms and their communities and doing comparative stuff. And what they found was that these young girls who got pregnant and had babies in their teens, both they and their children had better health outcomes than those who waited till their 20s. Okay, think about it, why might that be? Well, for one thing, if their kids they're probably still living at home. They have the grandparents or at least the grandmas to help raise the child, watch the baby while they go to school and they can finish high school. Um, they're not out there working an underpaid job, paying half their income for childcare, being treated to what they call the weathering, which is the emotional and psychic erosion of self that comes with the, the microaggressions and the macroaggressions of racism, sexism, and all the rest. Right? And it's not like they're doing a cost-benefit analysis, but they know which, kids, which girls, friends of theirs are still coming to school, who've, which ones are still able to go to parties and all the rest, right? So there's all these ways in which we have to think complexly about why people do the things we do. That's the research part. If we want to change things, we've got a lot of learning to do to not just react, but to understand what's underlying. You're listening to artist and activist Ricardo Levens Morales as he speaks to the Leadership Center for Social Justice on the Praxis of Hope. Humor tells us that something is, is, might be going on that isn't what we think is going on. Um, I heard a survivor of the Nazi concentration camps when saying that humor is the only thing that kept us alive. And if you think about it, a joke is just a story. And you understand the story as it's being told until you get to the punchline. And then you realize that everything you thought was happening isn't, and it's really a different outcome. And all those data points meant something else. Bing! Something might, might, things might be different than what I think. That's important if you're in a Nazi concentration camp and all the evidence tells you that the, you know, the end of hope is here. So now I'm going to go through some go through a little bit of preaching about, about hope and what it is and what it isn't. I want to address hope as an action, a discipline, and a relationship. And that's something I want to emphasize, especially in this narcissistic, individualist society, that hope is an action, not a feeling. Right? Feeling hopeful is not hope. Any more than feeling powerful is power. Right? We find ways to feel powerful, even when we're kidding ourselves. You know, and we find ways to feel hopeful. We can self-medicate with chemicals, or with distraction, or with binging on pasta, or creating idealized versions of ourselves for Instagram. But the feeling isn't the real thing, right? And feeling hopeful, feeling hope, feeling powerful are important if we have, but in themselves, they actually do not do what they need to do, which is move us toward those seeds, that moisture and nu nutrition, that better world that we want. So the feelings are important only if they're part of something bigger, of a larger process. Um, whether we can achieve a better future, right? And that's what, that's what we're talking about. That's what hopefulness is about. What the, that's what the chipmunk cares about. Um, is determined by what we do, not by how we feel. Just ask evolution. The, all the species that still exist are not still alive on the earth because of how they felt, but because of what they did, the actions they took in relation to what was around them. And so like a chipmunk, for hope to be meaningful, we need to be moving toward it, right? We're stretching our roots toward that water. If we step into the practice of hope, the feeling will follow. But if we just immerse ourselves in hopey feelings, it does not necessarily follow that actual change will come. And in fact, without intentional action, the things that we do to feel good, centered, at peace, and grounded can actually contribute to the problem. 
Um, Heinrich Himmler, who was the head of the Nazi SS, um, which included the Gestapo and the concentration camp guards, promoted a program of yoga practice for all of his agents in, in all those different agencies. Because being um, racist, brutal fascists is stressful. And this was a way to help his agents cope with the stresses of doing what they did so that they could continue and not be quite so stressed out by it, right? You know, and, and, and that's something to think about. You know, there's there's a, a lot of mythology that if we can only get the, the CEOs of Exxon and, you know, McDonnell, Grumman, or whatever they are, to do yoga and be mindful, they'll understand that they're part of the universe and they'll care about it. You know, which in theory should work, but we live in a system that fractions, fractionalizes everything and separates everything out and allows us to compartmentalize. Um, Basil van der Kolk, who's a leading practitioner of trauma healing, one of the researchers in that field, talks about um, an incident where a bunch of, of uh, grade school kids, I think it was about a dozen kids, got kidnapped and they were being locked in a basement. And one of them figured out how to Jimmy open a window and help all the other ones get out. And when they examined the kids later, all of them had symptoms of PTSD, except for that one, right? That sense of agency, restoring agency. Agency is a preventative of trauma and not only a curative. Similarly, I remember back, I was involved in the 1980s in the movement to prevent the spread of nuclear power. And that was a big deal in those days, and a lot of people were very afraid of what was happening with nuclear waste, with reactors, and all the rest. And again, in doing interviews with children across different, uh, about their attitudes and their, their, their perspectives um, in different sectors, uh, they found that it was the children of anti-nuclear activists who were the least fearful, right? Mommy's doing something about it, right? There's action. Action is an element of genuine hope, as it is an element of healing. So it's an action, it's also a discipline. And a discipline in that it's not only about taking intentional action, it's about taking strategic intentional action. Because you can do stuff that doesn't necessarily make a difference. It can affect the way you feel. I remember standing at a bus stop in uh, where, what, Knoxville, I think, and the bus was like 20 minutes late. I was trying to get to a conference where I was selling art, and I was frustrated, and I was pacing back and forth. And that just shows how essential it is to take an action, right? My body needed to do something to feel that I had agency in a situation where I didn't feel that I had power. So there's a positive feedback loop between hope and affection, effective action, right, that we see over and over again. Ricardo talks about taking action, and we can see that right here, right now. Harvey has been working his butt off to welcome the Golden Rule to Charleston, South Carolina, and it is going so well. He has thrown off despair and replaced it with the hope of the Golden Rule. This radio show and podcast that we do every week is an action where Harvey and I can do something to share information with the great guests we have, or just finding an underviewed or undershared presentation like the one we're listening to today, and just share it a little further. I know for us, the work we do to put this show together on a weekly basis is often a lot, but the idea of not doing it rarely crosses our minds, because we're doing something. Just like making a call to a congressman, writing a letter to the editor, or holding a sign on the street corner. Being a member of Veterans for Peace. Well, back to Ricardo. And it's hope that's rooted in reality, not in pretense. You know, that telling myself everything's going to be okay, that might get me through for a little while, but in the long run, you know, I know in my heart that that's not really grounded unless... I've done my homework. And I think nobody can say everything's going to be okay because nothing is ever okay, 
right? I mean, everything always has elements of okay and elements of not okay, right? That's, that's the balance, that are, that's the reality of our daily lives. So when we think about what are the things that trigger senses of despair, what is it that we're scared of? Why is everybody tuning in? Why, are, why is everybody else tuning out? Right? What is causing all of this paralysis, emotional paralysis in a moment where, um, where it's very widespread? I mean, you can diagnose the heck out of the United States, but various stages of high stress and anxiety are more the norm than the exception. And then you're throwing into that the pandemic and, you know, millions of guns and what could possibly go wrong. There's an exercise that I do, though, in situations like one of the big things that you hear from, you know, young people particularly, but hopefully from everybody, is the, what's happening with the climate. You know, there's something going on there, right? And we know it and we're seeing the evidence of it. And yet, right, what's being done? And there's an exercise that I do that's going to sound at first to be, be as ridiculous. But I'm going to say it anyway. And that's to ask myself in any given situation, what's the worst that can happen? What's the worst that could happen? It's worth naming it. Well, everything on earth could die. Okay, I said it. Um, humans could die and other things could keep living. Um, there can be famines, there can be fires, right? A lot of these things are already happening. And incidentally, people die all the time. In fact, most of the people who have ever lived have already done that, right? So it's really a question of balance about how do we, how do we prevent as much suffering, how do we prevent as much disaster as possible. And that requires a, a number of practices. One is to understand that to simply decide that all is lost means to lose it, right? It's like, okay, all is lost, that's despair. But in order to be able to save what isn't lost, we need to grieve what is lost. We need to be able to say goodbye. And not only goodbye, because it doesn't, it's not necessarily true that all the polar bears are going to go extinct. Some are adapting, but we can mourn the ones that are, right? And in fact, we can mourn all of the inevitabilities of loss that happen in our lives, because in our culture, loss is shoved under the carpet and we don't, experience, we don't deal with it. And that leaves us very ill-prepared to face risk and to pay, face danger and to face an uncertain future. And uh, I hate to break it to you, but all futures are uncertain. What I've learned to do is to walk toward what scares me. Walk toward, when I was in my teens, it was what scared a lot of people was the CIA, and, and especially the CIA. This mysterious thing that always seemed to be able to magically behind the scenes overthrow governments and assassinate people and all that. So I studied them find out who they were, what kind of people worked there, what their self-image was, where did they go to school, right? What are their strengths? One thing I learned is that for something like every 200 um, missions that they launched, one would succeed. It was like throwing spaghetti at the wall, right? So that demystifies a little bit. One thing I've been doing now is studying mass extinctions. We're in one, okay, if that's the case, let's figure out what does that mean to be in one? Um, this is probably the sixth one. What is it that, and they all play out differently, although they all have a lot to do with carbon. So I've been looking at extinctions, I've been looking at resilience. Why is it that even during a mass extinction, some species thrive and spread and others decline? How do they adapt? What are the natural forms of mitigation? What is it that has allowed coral reefs in the Dominican Republic, mangrove forests in Indonesia, depleted farmland in North Dakota, or apparently dead salmon streams in Canada to bounce back and revive? Well, what I found in each of those cases, they were protected and sheltered for a period of time from the abuses of capitalism, which is all about accelerated extraction. Right. So that really a salmon run or a coral reef does not have to be told how to heal, but they have to be protected from the harm. And as in, as just as in human healing, sometimes the damage is such, it helps to have a healer. And some, some interventions are necessary, but primarily the soil knows how to heal itself, the body knows how to heal itself, the community knows how to heal itself, um, you know, nature knows how to heal itself. So we need to stop the damage. 
You're listening to artist and activist Ricardo Levens Morales as he speaks to the Leadership Center for Social Justice on the Praxis of Hope. Now, we know how to heal ourselves, but we can get confused. Anybody here ever get confused? So we grow up thinking that Fritos are healthy and carrots are toxic, right? That's what our body tells us. Um, in next month, well, actually in April, um, it'll be 18 years since I stopped eating sugar and all other sweeteners. And it took me a while for my body to remember, to remember how the yumminess that's in other things, to be able to make that shift. We have the capacity to remember. The work I do in organizing is trying to find ways to remind people of what they already know because we do know it even if we've never been taught it, at least we know it deep down and organically. And by the way, if anyone's curious, I still love sweets, but my definition has shifted, right? You know, something that wouldn't have even tasted sweet to me before does now, and it's like, oh, it's my dessert, it's a treat. So we need to not be confused. We need to figure out, we need diagnoses. We need accurate diagnoses. In World War I, a lot of soldiers were experienced PTSD, right? They called it shell shock. But the military doctors were forbidden to write that down as a diagnosis because that would mean that the, the army would be on the hook for the expenses of treatment. So the, what they had to write down was nervous unknown. And false diagnoses lead to false solutions. And that's really one of the things that makes us hopeless is that we're in a world where there are all these problems and public policy and it's talked about in the media, all of these false diagnoses putting out there, and then of course people have solutions for them, right? Um, anybody believe that if only we trained police more, everything would be okay? See what I mean, right? And having a sense of cycles, having a sense of the context within which these things are happening, knowing that the trajectory of the police department for decades has been in a particular direction, and we have thrown some wrenches in those works, but that doesn't mean that it's, the direction has changed. Not yet. The same empire is still in place. Um, yes, the same thing happened to Emmett Till, has happened to Fred Hampton, has happened to Sandra Bland, has happened to Tortuguita and you know, Tyree Nichols, but they happened at different historical moments in the cycle of empire. You know, Emmett Till was killed a full decade before the US empire reached the peak of its power. And Tyree Nichols, was murdered in the, during its long extended multi-decade decline. And that means different things strategically and different things in terms of the resilience of the system that we're dealing with. So the abusers claim to be the healers. We're seeing that post George Floyd, right? Um, and funders provide grants to address small problems, but not big ones. So this inevitably brings us into conversations about political strategy, right? Um, and how do we sort things out? How do we do our homework? In the Black Lives Matter, a verse of poetry by Asada Shakur, now in exile in Cuba, out of the Black Power Movement, was used as a, as a chant at the beginning of meetings a lot. It says, it goes, it is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to win. We must love and protect one another. We have nothing to lose but our chains. And one thing I realized in the course of the movement is that people were down with fighting. They were down with loving and protecting each other. They didn't want the chains, but nobody really thought about winning, right? We can fight and fight and fight, but winning means we have to take ourselves to school, as it were. We need to learn what causes people to behave in the ways they behave. What is attractive? Why is the best offer on the table? joining a paramilitary fascist movement for some people? Why is it checking out and just getting high or binge watching Netflix? No offense to anybody. Um, the best option, alternative to actually trying to, to take forward-looking steps. And if we look at it in those large contexts, there's a lot of lessons to learn, you know? If we think about the cycles, fascism is actually a sign of weakness of a system. It's not the preferred method, so where is it weak? What are the vulnerabilities? Well, they're telling us some of the vulnerabilities. Have you noticed how much resource is being poured into to try to squash the telling of true history in schools? 
critical race theory, advanced AP black history in Florida and so forth. And that's telling us a vulnerability of the system, right? And that's something that, that can bring us forward. For me, the lessons that I've learned from immersing myself willy-nilly, I had no choice in nature, are, what are the gift that continues to give. You know, for example, um, I learned that the songbirds that um, harbor in our backyards and parks and boulevards here in the Twin Cities in the summertime, they, if you observe them, they're territorial. They're territorial, they're competitive, they have a nest and bait young to feed, and it takes a lot of grubs to fill a hungry nest full of birds, right? But when they migrate to New Mexico or Costa Rica or Cuba or Colombia, there's an abundance of food, they don't have babies, and they don't care whose feathers they're rubbing up against. They all eat together on the ground when there's a windfall, and, and they're not territorial and they're not competitive. So the things that we're taught of that are inherent nature, what do they come from? The perception of scarcity. And capitalism has been so brilliant at generating unimaginable abundance while maintaining the deeply held perceptions of scarcity. We're scared of each other, of being harmed, and we're scared of, you know, of scarcity, and they're the same thing. So some of you have heard me talk about hope as a relationship. Hope is a committed relationship. And it's a committed relationship with our futures, with our future selves and those who will be the selves that come after that. So, so I've talked sometimes about my circle by the river. This is my relationship with the future. It's a circle of people standing by a river somewhere. I always get teary when I talk about them. But they're in the future. Sometime, I don't know how far. I know that it's far enough that I'm never gonna meet them. But I have to be there because they're holding a ceremony to summon the ancestors. And I'm one of the ancestors. We are the ancestors. And the ceremony is one of thanksgiving. They're thanking us for what we did, are doing, and will do in this time of major change and shift. It's absolutely the end of a large historical arc of history. And things that come later will depend a lot on what we do. And they are coming together to appreciate us as their ancestors. And it really made me realize that much as we like to invoke our ancestors, we might need our descendants even more. We need to know who we are making things for, who we're leaving messages for. So those are my people, right? Those are the people who I work toward. And while some people are debating and arguing about whether there's a future and whether there's hope, I actually am not listening because I'm walking toward that river, right? That's what we do. That's what we do. When a loved one is injured, we don't do a cost-benefit analysis about whether it's worth helping them because what are their chances, right? We do everything we can, right? That's what we do. And in fact, that helps to determine the outcome. The outcome isn't given. I mean, the modeling about ecology and climate change has been overturned so many times because we've never, we don't have the database, the, point, the data points to understand the levels of resilience embedded in a global system, only in more localized systems, except for in these cases of mass extinction, where the microbes all survived, where anything that reproduced quickly survives, right? There's, oh, there's different ways and with anything that's already pre-adapted to the conditions that are going to come. We have one pre-adaptation, and that's our ability to think. So I'm walking toward them. There's one way, one thing I would like to, to um, also commend, and that is my little friend, the sweat wasp. But I'm mentioning the sweat wasp because it's a tiny insect that lives in little holes in twigs 
on the forest floor and the jungle floor, the ones that I've uh, read about are in South America. And that's an environment that changes from day to day. And so the little sweat wasp leaves its, its den and flies around from different angles um, and looks at its home. And it's looking at from here, there, and everywhere else, memorizing what it looks like on that particular day. So it goes off and it navigates by magnetic fields and sunlight and who knows what. But when it's close to home, it's using visual. And that way it can find its way home. That's what Black Lives Matter was doing when they started every, every meeting with that chant. How do we remind ourselves of our home, of our grounding, of our commitments to that relationship that we were just talking about? What, what do we do, right? And I'm asking that as an open question. For in, this is a theological seminary. There are things that are done with prayer, with invocations, with song. The same is true in, in social movements. It's often true in families. And we, I think it's an important thing to do in our individual practice. Because the small picture can buffet us around and bruise our spirit and make us feel hopeless and damaged. But if we keep ourselves grounded in this larger world, we find the sources of resilience. At least that's been my experience. So let's all be like the sweat wasp and start every day by regrounding ourselves in these truths. But the red line at the beginning is outrage. In response to an atrocity like the murder of George Floyd, you get this burst of outrage. But like um, nutrients and chemicals in the soil, they decompose and, dis and dissipate at different rates, different emotions. And outrage peaks high, burns hot, but dissipates fairly quickly. Whereas fear just starts growing and, and isn't really at its peak until much later. That's why you get these big outbursts of movement and protest followed by silence. This happened in 2006 with massive protests around immigrant rights, the largest the country had ever seen. And then afterwards, People returned to the shadows because there were not containers to carry it forward. For hope to, to, to go forward, you have to feel that there's a practicality to it. So you need organizations, you need publications, you need schools, you need trainings to support it. And so the second chart shows the line of hope that with, with organization and preparation starts growing also during the outrage fear phase and can, can outpace and, and, and pass through the fear phase. So again, it's important even in our own lives, but to emotionally understand where we are in our own arcs in relation to what's happening around us. Seeds of resistance, that's just simply an illustration of the lesson of interconnectivity. It says we'll grow under any conditions, best planted, best when planted together, showing the signs of different movements. And the movement for healing is not without conflict. That in order for a new ecosystem to take home, the invasive species have to be pushed back in whatever way that you know, requires, and hopefully with as much kindness and gentleness as possible, but it has to happen. We don't, we're not doomed to carry the traumas and the abuses and the toxicities that we've inherited. Like wetlands, we have a model for cleansing those before we pass on whatever we're passing on to other people. Because in the end, all we have to offer is ourselves. And that's not only a slogan, but a lesson, because nobody knows, especially in times of uncertainty, specifically what it will take to make a better world. So, but we can focus on the kind of people we need to be in order to figure that out, in order to take care of each other, and in order to also challenge each other in the ways that we need to so that we can all eventually get there together. But I think amplifying that because the lack of a pathway that feels hopeful um, feels to me like abandonment of the young. And you know, telling kids that, you know, that oh no, this is great, we're gonna run somebody really smart for, um, on the Democratic ticket for the state legislature, um, come on out, we're, we're, we're about to be saved, doesn't cut it. People really need to be able to have truths that resonate, that they really can feel are deeply true. And that includes a vision of change that is actually going to stop us from you know, dry, running the ship over the, uh, you know, into the iceberg. 
we're talking the Titanic here, and that's one iceberg that won't melt fast enough, you know, for, for us to get through, right? And a lot of the way social change is framed is about helping people improve conditions on the Titanic, right, without addressing, because to address those issues, you have to deal with the fact, the uncomfortable fact, that a cabal of powerful, ultra-rich corporations run the world. And all the solutions that really matter would get in the way of profits. I mean, hello, emperor has no clothes, and that is refreshing. You know, young people, and also, truth-telling has a lot of dimensions. You know, in the struggle to try to get kids to not smoke cigarettes, um, which is a complex and multicultural struggle, but what they found was that telling kids, don't do that, you're going to die, wasn't very effective. Telling kids, these assholes are manipulating you, made a difference. Nobody likes to be taken for a ride, and one's sense of one's own identity is often the most powerful organizing tool, especially among the young. So we will leave it there, and to see the full presentation, just go to YouTube and search Ricardo Levens Morales. Ricardo Levens Morales. And then look for the Praxis of Hope. And thanks to the Leadership Center for Social Justice of the United Theological Seminary for putting this on. So as we finish up, what are you taking away from this? I know I am taking away a number of ideas, but for now, the idea that I am the ancestor that I will be looked back on by my descendants. And how does that change the way I approach things? And then, as Ricardo said, to walk towards those things that are fearful. What are you going to be walking towards? I know being a member of Veterans for Peace facilitates walking towards a lot of problems, from nuclear war to the climate crisis, from peace at home to peace abroad. But there are other things. For example, here in Tennessee, we are in the bottom across the country as far as health and education. And thus, we are near the top in poverty. What does our legislature do but spend time on legislation to prohibit drag shows? Come on now. Well, to finish up, we needed a song of hope. And so I reached out to friend of the show, Janet Bates. And she recommended A Day is Coming from her CD called Another Child. So with that, here's Janet. If just one day papers say there will be no bad news today, there'll be sunshine and some rain, no more sadness, no more pain. The day's coming, a day so fine Been waiting for the longest time The day's coming, a day so fine The day is coming Oh, 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 oh. What if one day someone could find a way To unite all mankind No soldiers or wars Love my country just as yours in a day so fine Been waiting for the longest time The day's coming A day so fine The day is coming Oh, and oh What if one day All children played Men grew old Women were safe Rockets rusted in the ground Big trees grew all around the day's coming, a day so fine Been waiting for the longest time The day's coming, a day so fine The day is coming Faces smiling up so bright Sort of like they are